Hello and welcome to What We Talk About When We Talk About Tech, a podcast about tech storytelling and the words and narratives shaping the industry. I'm Rich Gall. You can follow me on Twitter at Rich G. Gall. And I'm here with my co-host Jennifer Riggins, as always. You can follow her on Twitter at JK Riggins. And in this week's episode, we're talking with Dimitri Vinnick, who is an open source developer advocate at Facebook. Now, we're going to speak a little bit with Dimitri about what being a developer advocate at Facebook means and what it involves, and also about the role that open source plays for the organisation too. But before we get started, um, yeah, thanks for joining us, Dimitri. How are you? Good, good. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Uh, hello, everyone. No, thanks for joining us. Maybe the best place to start is just to get you to introduce yourself, talk about what you do, but also maybe explain how you came to be a developer advocate at Facebook. Yeah, the, I think it's a good place to start too. <laughs> so uh, my name is Dmitry, uh, Dmitry Vinnik. I currently uh, work in as an open source developer advocate on Facebook. My primary focus these days is around mobile, but I'm also working on development tools, part of our portfolio. Our open source portfolio is quite large. It's over 700 active open source projects. So I have uh, quite a bit of work and my colleagues also have quite a bit of work as well. How do I, how did I end up here? So it's a kind of a long story. I have, I usually split it in a couple of parts. How did I get in tech and also now in DevRel? In terms of tech, I started back in Russia. I was in medical school, actually. I, I've never really been interested in tech uh, in anything computer science. I've never liked math. Math was overly complex and I was glad to be done with it. But after I moved to Canada for school, I went to do bioinformatics, which was basically is a field where it combines biochemistry, molecular biology, and computer science. But computer science was like an afterthought. And again, I've never enjoyed doing Java or C++ on those classes. And I don't blame the teachers. Really, it just, I wasn't ready for it. But then after I graduated with the Associate of Science degree from college in Canada, I, I it was for me to start the immigration process to become Canadian because, again, I was on a visa initially. And uh, to do so, you have to find a job. And the easiest way for me to find a job was in the tech field because I could, again, apply my education, but also there are plenty of jobs in that area. And so... I started my way as the kind of service monitor, you know, going to different servers, checking CPU, disk size. And uh, I decided to automate some of the processes that I've been kind of doing manually day after day. And after I've done it, I still remember that feeling. It was just something I would never forget. You know, I actually cried when when my program compiled and did the work I planned it to do. And just it, it, it reminded me of the time when I was in med school where you can create so much out of pure air, out, out of nothing. Thing. And, you know, I've never given up on tech after that. I've been just full on that. I became a Java developer first, been a lead software engineer at Salesforce. And eventually it's kind of a, became my transition into developer relations, where again, it's the second part of the story. I uh, first went to a conference, uh, ApacheCon. It's a, you know, open source foundation. And it was an event that happened in Vancouver, Canada, where at the time I lived. And I was just, I, I, you know, the, the feeling of community, uh, meeting people in the hallways, going to those talks, learning about open source. I still remember where I got this different perspective as the user of open source at, at my corporate job, I only could see, you know, oh, this is a great library to, you know, parse text or make database connection faster. But when I spoke with someone from Apache and it gave me an example of, you know, journalists in some countries where, you know, freedom of speech is not as, uh, you know, the, you, you can't really speak your mind as much as we can, for example, here in the US or in 
other parts of the world. And so they use the Apache technology to securely communicate with each other, bring the uh, you know knowledge about the, the place they live in to the rest of the world. And uh, I, again, it gave me the different perspective and I wanted to get more of that, more of that community feeling and decided to go to more events. And the best way for me to go to events, because I didn't want to spend too much money on that, was to speak at those events. And um, <laughs> I decided to give it a try and I've applied to speak at an event in Ukraine. I believe it was just a because the time worked for me and I was accepted. I've never thought I would ever get accepted my talk, uh, my presentation. And so, you know, I went there, I spoke there and I ended up giving like 50 talks in one year. All over the world, I once had a time where I had 13 different countries in one month where I went to give a, you know, a presentation, different presentations, by the way. And so I've just, you know, 50 conferences a year, it's quite a bit. And it started impacting my work, obviously, because I still was a developer. So I had to deliver code and the product. And I decided that I enjoyed it so much that I want to make it my full-time career and the rest is history basically I you know went to be a developer relations and now I really enjoy my work at open source team as a developer advocate that's very interesting you're the opposite so the other DevRel people we've talked to so far are more akin to Rich and I where well no not necessarily but maybe they don't have the technical background but they have the technical passion and then yours is the opposite where you have the technical background and you have the passion for public speaking and building communities. So it totally fits. The open source department at, at uh, Facebook, where is that housed under? Because DevRel is always housed in unique and different places. So it's always an interesting question. Who's yeah, your boss's uh, boss? <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's a great. I mean, obviously, we all report to single person. I mean, not a single person, but mul uh, multiple of those. But um, th that's that's again, when it comes to developer relations, I don't really my I don't really care for discussion around how is it called DevRel, developer advocacy, evangelism. What matters to the most, especially when I interviewed, the main question I've asked: Who do you report to? Is it developer marketing or, or marketing, or is it engineering? Luckily, and that's why again I joined open source team at Facebook. It's report directly to engineering. Engineering. It's a part of engineering. Uh, I'm treated as individual contributor. I'm uh, again the same as the software engineer would. Uh, that also kind of gives me credibility, and you know, there is no expectations of selling anything, and that's what I think developer advocate. Um, you know, in, in my position is. So again, I don't have anything to like push a product, but uh, like open, like use Facebook, use WhatsApp. I don't need to do any of that. That's also a great part of being an open source advocate because, you know, with people, we don't make money out of it. It was interesting word choice. You said, luckily it's in the engineering department. So that seems like part of like your job decision-making as you're looking at jobs. Explain more why you think DevRel is better suited in that department, just in your opinion, of course. I mean, what I've learned for the, you know, in the, in the past couple of years, it always depends on what, what companies' needs are. When I interviewed, I've met some companies that were saying, we're looking for a person who would be a professional conference goer. You know, you would be going to a number of events a year, 30, 40. I know people who travel like 180 days a year or even more, which is not that uncommon actually. But, you know, this approach of just a, an activity uh, was always wrong to me. Uh, or, you know, sitting on a booth at the event, uh, you know, if it works for a particular company, it's great. For myself, I never wanted to do that as much. When I go to an event, I'm not really looking for necessarily giving a talk. I'm more looking for a way to, you know, highlight, showcase the project, whether it can be through conference, maybe it's a hackathon, maybe it's through written posts, videos, whatever the need is. And it's something that you requires your knowledge and actually working with the, with the team that you're supporting. And uh, marketing, it might help. It might help with ads, promotions, but for myself, coming as a, there's obviously fear of my, uh, for me to like leave engineering because I come from the engineering background. I'm a, I was a lead software engineer at Salesforce and, uh, you know, jumping full on marketing, not necessarily to say they don't do any engineering whatsoever, but still 
engineering is something that I know I enjoy and I wanted to stay in that space. And that was actually, again, was my main question I've asked at the end of, actually, at the beginning of any interview that I've had while looking for the real position. Yeah, it actually feels like something that important that it should probably be in. Well, who you report to should probably be in any job description, but how often is it? It's interesting we're talking about this when we're recording. It's March 15th, 2021. And tomorrow will be one year since my first of being the COVID reporter for the new stack among my beats this year. And it was uh, it was grounded. DevRel teams look to nurture communities online. And I've been really wanting to revisit that topic because I've covered it indirectly because a lot of the people I just cover are DevRel, but I'm covering the stories and they're facilitating. How has your job changed and in this crazy year of COVID? <laughs> Yeah, COVID was an interesting year. Last year was a interesting and actually very meaningful to me because I I uh, I had a son last year as well. So it was uh, you know again very impact, impactful for me. For and it sure. also gave me like a, a chance to take a break as well because I've mentioned I've uh, I was close to burning out on travel. I was traveling way too much um, bef- before joining Facebook and uh, the COVID hit. And um, and I mean as har- I mean harmful to some extent uh, to a large extent. COVID was again I was able to give myself an excuse not to do that, not to go to events. But also you know lots of events started being canceled and as a new father i also was trying to cautious of traveling even if there were opportunities i actually was one of the at the time of when it all started we plan i planned to go to an event and i think i was one of the first people who pulled out of that altogether before any restrictions were applied in terms of how it changed really i think it's something we've planned you know planned to do anyways but now it's a bit more becoming more and more apparent after you analyze conferences a bit and you look at how many people you reach. If your goal is adoption, and again, it's important to go back to your team and figure out what's your goals. And if it's, let's say, an adoption, you have to think of how many people do you reach at the event. In a, like during the giving a talk, it might be hundreds, tens of people at best. And maybe you publish the talk, uh, that recording, and it might hit a couple of thousand in a best case scenario, right? But if you think of write a blog post or make a video that you post online, you can potentially reach more people, especially if it's a shorter format. That's what we've been experimenting with, short format videos. You might have seen Explain Like M5 video series that we've launched last year at Facebook Open Source. And because we have a data overload and uh, also going to events was consuming additional commute time. But obviously, we're all missing this experience. There's something I'm really, you know, l- liking these days, experience of face-to-face interaction. Whenever I went to conferences, I rarely went to the other people's talks. I went to learn from people, but I, if I knew it would be recorded, I would watch the recording. Instead, I would spend all my time in the hallway chatting with people, learning from other folks at the event, wh- why, why they came there, what their questions, what are they looking for? That was my main goal. And now I haven't done it like in over a year and it's definitely left like a gap <laughs> in my uh, expertise as a dev I think conferences, they're coming back right now. And I, I even applied for a couple to speak at. It's definitely fewer. We all know some conferences went out of business altogether, unfortunately. Uh, so I think we'll definitely be focusing on online presence as much as possible. And in person, it's something to be evaluating. I, I see more, lots of events planned to open up in person at the end of the year. And uh, I'm not sure how that will work out. I'm still hopeful. I'm very hopeful, but I'm looking, observing. So uh, lots of com- focus on online, I say. Do you, have you been attending online events? Have you been speaking at online events or participating in open sources obviously has a rich online community. How does that communicate at Facebook? open source. Yes. So we've organized a couple. Uh, there is a Presto day that's uh, uh, PrestoCon day that's coming in like next week, I believe, uh, around PrestoDB, one of the open source projects. 
uh, from Facebook. Obviously, we had some internal events that were called online. I've applied and I'm actually scheduled to speak at an event next week, I believe. But again, it's a, such an interesting experience where I pre-record a presentation. It's not even a live event, which gives me quite a flexibility as well. I remember a couple of years ago when I weren't able to actually go in person to this particular country, I've asked whether I can present online. I was always told no. And now that's the only th way people ask you to present. Uh, and also with being a father, you know, uh, a new father, I, I have my schedule is a bit hectic to say the least. And so in terms of an online event, I've attended a couple. I really like seeing people experimenting with different platforms. I have attended a talk, um, not a talk actually, a conference in the ML space where they've used the software. I don't remember the name, unfortunately, but you can see like little avatars of people sitting around the table and you can join in the conversation and have like a separate room for that table. It's a, you know, it's a way to bring us closer together, but still that component of face-to-face -face will always, like I'm not, whenever I speak to the camera, right? I don't even talk to a person. I look at the camera right above the person because that's the only way to have this kind of eye contact feel to it, right? So there's still something going to be missing. And that's something I'm definitely, it's escaping me as I attend those online events. Yeah, I think that was a virtual venue, like spatial chat or Cumo space. And good for you for looking at the camera because you are doing it very well because that isn't something <laughs> even I try to turn off self-view a lot, but I'm not great at making the, for lack of a better word, eye contact. <laughs> We, we, you know, not, none of us are. I mean, it's. I think it's instinctual as well. People are kind of, a, it might look aggressive as well to look for certain eyes for a prolonged period of time. And because it's uh, kind of separated by attack, you're kind of missing out that uh, bio, biological component. It's, it's tricky. It's tr definitely tricky. So you've mentioned how much you've missed these like hallway conversations over the last 12 months. But I wanted to discuss with you your sense of like where these different conversations take place and sort of the uses of these different like contexts and sort of what you learn in them and how learning sort of evolves and changes according to sort of where you find yourself. Obviously, sometimes digitally, but even like you say, sort of physically, like you obviously learn different things in sort of different environments. There's obviously a sort of real difference between learning something and talking to people in the lobby of a conference and sort of learning something, sat down, listening to someone for half an hour. So I just wanted to get your sense of, yeah, what were the differences between all those really? Yeah, that's a great question. So it, it really depends. For example, some people have... Um... And it's totally expected. They, they, they have a shyness to them, obviously, after like approaching a speaker after someone gives a talk. And it's, again, totally expected because as a speaker, you have to present, trying to be open and welcoming at the same time. You're obviously the only person talking in the room. There's still that confidence that you project. And as a result, people have a, you know, I don't expect people to ask me a question, as many questions while, while I was on stage way back when in-person events were a real thing. And so I didn't, I didn't have many questions, to be honest, while I was on stage. But as soon as, you know, camera shuts down and people are leaving the room, that's when people started approaching me and asking me questions, had a conversation. I, uh, I think one of the most impactful uh, for myself personally, talk that I've given in the past was around stress at work and being overworked because at some point while I was, you know, doing full-time school and full-time work, I've gotten like to the point where I had a panic attack that I had to go to uh, the emergency room. So I've shared that experience and it was very real. If, I, if it's something I, it's a word I can use, but 
for me to share on stage the first time publicly. And um, after I did that, I think I was in Prague or in, uh, or, or in Krakow in Poland. And so when I gave that talk, there weren't again as many, and I, I was actually at the end, I said, I understand that's a very personal talk and, you know, uh, area to discuss. So I don't expect many people to approach me right now. Let's talk right after, you know, the talk is over. And after that, I've had very meaningful conversations with, with folks. They shared their experiences with me long after the talk was over. They caught me in a hallway. Oh, you were the person who gave that talk. Uh, they gave me some ideas. Let's make an open source project where we can pull in the resources so people learn how to deal with their stress or how to find like uh, resources for how to sleep properly. Those sorts of things that I've mentioned in the talk. So that was like one way I've engaged people at the conference. And it was very meaningful to myself as well. But when I go to an event when I'm maybe not speaking or my talk is something about mobile, but you know, I'm there to represent open source so I, or just Facebook open source. And um, I would chat with folks on the, you know, their booth. For example, I see a booth by Twilio. I approach them. They might be DevRel folks as well. I want to learn about their experience because they are famous for hackathons. Or I might approach someone from Amazon and Amazon is so, you know, large and they have so many departments for quite independent and I can learn from them. But also, more importantly, I'll grab a IC lunch space when it was a real thing in person. And I sit someone on the table and I start a conversation, learn from them why they're there. Big events like uh, I was at Dreamforce, which has 170,000 attendees a couple of years ago. I would meet people from all, all over the world. And again, I learn from them. And I don't really want to talk about tech either sometimes. So I would just learn about their life, why they're there, what are they looking for? And, um, you know, it's, uh, I, I really enjoyed that experience, I would say. And I think it's really clear nowadays, part of uh, developer avocados, as they sometimes <laughs> call themselves, can they get more hipster, but um, are, is doing the softer side of tech too, especially when you're an open source community, you're dealing with a lot of diversity and inclusion issues because it's like, 4% gender minority and women contributors, uh, 4%, I said, yes, not like the 21 to 23% of the regular tech community. And you're dealing with a lot of, you're dealing with a lot of free workers, people that are not employed by your company. So uh, dealing with work-life balance, uh, addressing the burnout issues, addressing psychological safety, I think developer avocados have uh, taken over that conversation a lot in the tech community and are leading it. And I see a lot of developer evangelists, developer DevRel, et cetera, um, talking about like their different life experiences, whether it's neurodivergent or they're just, it's very interesting community right now because while they're not having to travel as much and their carbon footprint's a lot smaller, they're taking on a different kind of burden and a different kind of responsibility, it feels like in the tech community to take care of the mental health of the tech community or at least share their own experiences and to help people take care of themselves because a lot of open source contributors and especially maintainers are doing it, not getting paid and they're doing it in their free time, their extra time. So I think it's a really interesting role right now. That, that, that's for sure. You know, in terms of DNI, diversity and inclusion, I uh, I always preface whenever, you know, I give a career, uh, you know, advice of any kind, even though I'm an immigrant from like Russia, I, I still, I'm very full, I'm fully aware of the privileges that I have and my advice definitely doesn't apply to all. I, uh, you know, I definitely, I really 
value members of my team. I we have a quite a diverse team at Facebook Open Source. Kemi Williams uh, last year, actually, sorry, not last year, the year before COVID hit, she's been doing a great work with uh, women in ML space. Uh, and unfortunately, those in-person events are not there anymore. But I see more and more conferences like that where people can represent themselves. On March 8th, a couple of folks from our team, they presented uh, at an event for women in tech. And, uh, you know, I, I enjoy that there are more venues like that online and people, some, you know, some people have, you know, family matters Some people just can't travel and now they can, uh, you know, be at the event because the conferences don't, didn't really pay for travel as much, which not to say that they should uh, or, you know, they have to, but it kind of a, didn't allow some folks and remote countries or people who, because it's not cheap, right, to fly somewhere, especially before before COVID. And, and as a result, they weren't able to attend, they weren't able to speak. And now, and you mentioned yourself before this interview started, this podcast started, that lots of online events are free now. So I think those venues open up and I hope it will bring us closer. Obviously, it still leaves space for some comments that people can stay, live anonymously and as a result, but, but there will always be people like, like that, right? Not, not, so nice, not so nice comments online will always exist. But you have to remember that there are more people who are empathetic and uh, positively thinking. And I think empathy is one of the main skills that a DA should have. Not the engineering expertise, not necessarily like soft skills speaking with empathy, whether it's to engineering teams that you work with or just the community at large so yeah i think that's a really good point i wanted to explore kind of how you come up with content so you mentioned explain it to me like i'm five and i think that's a really cool idea but what i want to know is you know how do you actually do that how do you kind of take a complex technology technology topic and explain it to someone like they're five so how do you pull out something interesting something that's particularly relevant or that stands out and then sort of package it in a way that's accessible understandable and approachable um yeah so i wonder if you could just talk through sort of how you go about that rich just means how would you explain it to me the luddite of the group <laughs> yeah, uh, that, I think it's an important thing to discuss. So let's say I was producing a content for a conference, right? I would always look at the conference theme, what their goal is for this year or for this you know, edition. I would also look at the conference talks on this event a year before and in the previous edition. And I see what was accepted, what because it will allow me to understand the audience. Topics and the theme will allow me to understand what the conference is about, really, and what they're looking for. Because you don't, don't think on the perspective of how do I represent myself, it's how do I help audience at the event that I'm trying to apply to and go to attend or again to speak at. And so that will help me to change my potentially already pre-existing talk to fit this narrative, or I might write a completely new thing. It's almost like when you apply for a job, creating one resume, resume and sending it to hundreds of uh, jobs, never changing a single sentence, might not produce as much result, as many results as you would hope for. But if you have a targeted approach where you kind of uh, have the same generic resume, but you fit it into a particular job description that you're applying for, might really help. The same for conference talks. In terms of what kind of content, how do you come up with ideas? I think best types of conference or online presentations these days are not really lectures because I never liked going to school and universities or colleges and listening to someone speak in, into the void and never getting any interaction. You want that interaction. You want to create a dialogue. Even if you don't hear people, you want them sitting at their chair and saying, that's exactly right. I've also felt that or I've experienced the same. So that's why instead of just discuss, talking about like, I don't know, Kotlin, or uh, you know Java. The best 
talks, I think, are user stories, are real stories. And uh, and it doesn't have to be, you don't, as a speaker, you don't need to think, oh, I never dealt with a production scale of like Facebook. Whatever company or even personal project you're working on, if you encounter a bug or encounter a wall that we all face as people who deal with code, or if you're a documentation writer and you've dealt with the an engineering team that doesn't want to sh- share anything online, how do you approach that? Any problem that you face, personally, is something you can talk about with passion because that's what people are looking for. They're looking for your personal insight, your expertise, and that helps you to come up with a talk. That's how I, I work on my talks, uh, whether it's online or a conference talk. And so I would sit down and I think, or maybe before sitting down, I've made some notes that, oh, I've encountered this issue. I want to elaborate on that and make a, create a talk because really it's just the title and the 300 words at best, maybe an outline for some conference. And then you can like, then you can come and come up with that, uh, you know, with really the content. But you have to be careful with that either. I've uh, heard some stories where people would try to make a very elaborate talk of, I will an- analyze thousands and thousands of tweets for sentiment analysis. And then they have a month left before a conference or a week left, and they can't possibly do that because of rate limiting API that Twitter has. So you have to be like in a space where you don't bite more than you can chew, but really it has to come from personal experience. And that I think that's one of the main strengths of mine is consume information, maybe complex information, and present it in the beginner-friendly way. Because I often deal with projects. uh, And I mentioned Facebook has 700 open source, active open source projects, even more than that now. And I can't possibly know all of them. Can be even like intermediate in in most of them. And so I would, I will be able to approach it as the beginner. It gives me like, I think, a leg up and presented in a way that was easier for me to understand. And that comes with the experience. Practice makes perfect, whether it's in life or preparing and writing talks and coming up with ideas. So, yeah. On that, actually, I remember from my time in technology publishing, just like how many beginners there are out there and how easy it is to forget that there are a lot of beginners in tech. And obviously that's true for people new to the industry. But even if you're someone with 10, 20, 30 years in the industry, there's always going to be something that you don't know, maybe something that's new to you, something that's just been released, something that you want to try for the first time. And I think that means that there's always going to be a demand for introductory foundational information. So if you're someone that can kind of communicate something in an introductory, accessible way, make it relevant to someone, to maybe the experience they already have, then I think, yeah, that's that's really valuable and an important part of the industry, actually, and one that we often overlook. Yeah, and it's a it's a big it's kind of, it's not a problem, but it's a reality when you are a part of the engineering team that let's say deliver, developing a new open source database. You have so many assumptions that you make because you've been there from the very beginning, or maybe from the very launch of the project, and uh, you know way too much. Whether you have a background knowledge, context, or some inner workings of the project, it's hard for you to put that beginner's hat and write introduction to for you know five years old and it's not it's not offensive in any way the five years old motto it's very well known reddit uh i think reddit initially created this and made or made it popular where any topic whether it's personal financing or accounting of some sort can be explained in a manner that you know we can consume and understand without reading a 300 pages book so it's a <laughs> i think it's a nice uh, perspective and approach so how does how big is the open source developer advocate team at Facebook? 
thereabouts? Yeah, that's that's a good question. We've grown like exp- almost exponentially in the past couple of years. Uh, I have to count. It's not it's not a too large of a team. It's a fairly new team for Facebook. We've had in the past Christina Bernathi, Joel Marcy, Eric Nikagawa. We had those people being developer advocates indirectly at Facebook for years now. But a couple of years back, uh, with the help of Kathy Cam, who's our manager, the Facebook open source really you know investing in facebook develop developer advocacy more and more and uh it's not a large group really it's uh it's less it's fewer than 20 people I don't remember i never counted it exactly but, but you it's said around there's, it's very few there's 700 projects that you're supporting so yes. how do you decide which projects to take on or how do you divvy up the work that, that, that that's a that's a one million that's a million dollar question you know you have to with a scale of that size you have to approach it where you have different tiers of support, right? So you have to you have to make it self-service to some extent. So you make sure that the projects have all support they need or they have a good place to start, especially new projects, because you might have 700, but you'll get more in the future. You have to think of quality of the projects and know why people open sourcing things. You don't want people just open source for the sake of open sourcing. You have to think what their goals are, what their long-term plans are. So making sure we derive those criteria and share them with teams is something we're making sure we put in place. And so we have quality projects. The community engagement is there. Uh, You know, people don't disregard someone else's PR or issues. Those things we want to make sure it's a healthy, welcoming, and safe and diverse open source project. That's really the focus of ours as well. And so we'll put in those criteria in place, making kind of a, with a scale of that size, 20 people or fewer than 20 people can do it. And you don't want to hire okay. a person for each project. So you have to come up with the enough documentation, workflow, automated workflow. If you want people to do something, you have to make it easy. So we've der- we have a great open source tooling team at Facebook that came up with a plenty of tools for everything, starting with uh, measuring, collecting metrics to how do you launch the project? How do you make sure that you keep an eye on PRs that come from the outside? We also push our internal changes upstream to the open source. Some projects completely use the open source version of the code. So that's basically kind of logistical part of the question. In terms of a more, you know, person and how where our team team fits in, it's really the matter of where we want to focus our investment. We can't stretch ourselves to thing either. For example, you might see we've produced lots of videos and blogs, but we haven't done as much live streaming. And uh, so we have to figure out a narrative for each kind of a space. I mentioned at the beginning, I focus on mobile. So any tens and hundreds of those projects under like 700 uh, portfolio would go under my uh, space, mobile. Some folks will focus on AI ML, some people will focus on development tools and we're expanding those portfolios on a need per per need basis. So as we have more projects that do need support, because honestly, Open, developer advocates are not people who would go, at least in our team, we're not going to go and uh, speak on your behalf, on a team's behalf all the time, while your engineers will focus on enge- on code. If that's your goal, uh, you know, there is no real need for you to make an open source. Keep it uh, internal, maybe make a name for it and go present. We don't present uh, talks as much uh, in that sense. We make sure we have a direction for the team. We help them figure out the direction. We showcase their work, but I will help the team like we recently published a Relay uh, Hooks uh, API on Facebook open source. And we helped that team. I didn't write it, but I've helped along with my, with our team for engineers to write the blog, to publish it, have a proper venue, help them launch it, promote it, share it. I might produce the video that you might see explain like I'm five, but it's you can see it's very introductory, very overview-like. But for more in-depth 
documentation. I'll get help of documentation writers. We also get help from the open source contractors. You mentioned before that lots of people who work on open source, I see revolution in that space where now people, yes, lots of people do it for free and uh, really appreciate that. But you can see that GitHub sponsors was launched a couple of years ago, which had some issues, but still it's a, it's a nice, you know, uh, project, a nice way to kind of, uh, you know, pay the people who work on open source and get sponsors for that. Open Collective is a major contributor to open source. I mean, companies contribute through that platform and Facebook contributes to quite a few, uh, whether it's a Facebook or external project that we use. So, but we also, as I mentioned, we do hire people who work full-time on open source. I myself, technically that employee, I work full-time on open source from developer advocacy perspective. We have people who are working on DocuSource full-time and other many other projects. So you find ways to scale it, but by no means we want to be a bottleneck. So it's about empowering the team and showcasing, highlighting their excellent work rather than making myself a face for particular projects. I'll make sure that I might be a face for mobile presence and narrative, but and, you know, still I stand on the shoulders of giants and it's going to be those engineering teams I support. And uh, if you approach it from that perspective, that 700 doesn't really, it might sound heavy, but at the same time, if you empower those 700 teams, uh, then you have like a huge force behind you and actually in front of you, I would say. Somehow you didn't diminish it. You made it seem like more insurmountable amount of work. <laughs> yeah, that, that's it, it's a lot. It's a lot. That's a, that's something you have to deal with as a developer advocate. I don't think it's just mm -hmm. at Facebook. It's everywhere. And uh, I, I know lots of folks have uh, been writing about it. Like burnout and DevRel is real in any, in any role, I think. But still, because some companies would hire, and I sometimes get those you know, job or, or, you know requests for interviews where want to be your you, we want to be your uh, our first developer advocate or developer evangelist or whatever they will call it. And uh, they might already have a goal in mind, but they most likely don't. Uh, it's one of those things, you know, you, you, you know what you like, but you don't really know what you really want. You know, you, you might go and buy and look for a hammer, but really you just care for the frame, how it gets fit on the wall. That, that's what you're looking for. And my job, my expertise is to help you get there, but also you might be pulled in different directions. There are so many different venues to explore, experiments to, uh, to do, like I might be experimenting with some ads, uh, with, you uh, you know, Clubhouse, we've talked about it as well, right? I've never really looked at it as a, from the even user perspective, TikTok, uh, you know, obviously Facebook, Instagram, all those channels, Twitch, as I mentioned, we do publish blogs and videos, but we don't you know, live stream as much. And uh, you might be tempting, tempted to pull, to be pulled in those directions and different teams supporting different teams, but you have to always step back, ruthlessly prioritize and uh, keep yourself focused. I can't go to 50 events anymore. And I, not like I want to, but I can't do that because I know it's the best use of my time. I'll focus on direction uh, and maybe I'll outsource some stuff, design, development, but it's, it's definitely a role where you have to be comfortable with uncomfortability and, uh, you know, flying, the sh like, uh, you know, driving while you're building it. So it's a... It's definitely, I think it's going to change that developer advocate may not be the most expensive role in a company anymore, and it won't have as much environmental impact. So we'll yeah. see how it goes in the next year or two. I mean, you know, I've spent quite a bit of money on the home, at home setup. I'm still learning about it. My lights has been one of the ch most challenging things I had to deal with. But, you know, you learn a lot. It's time of experimenting, I think. I've uh, been at home DA, um, but it's exciting as well. I, you know, I think you should enjoy enjoy that. And uh, I am enjoying it. So that's a, it's a great privilege I have. And I, yeah, the team is amazing as well. So. so you mentioned the importance of like building a narrative. So 
you know, in your case within mobile, but presumably sort of across all the open source areas. And I wanted to ask like how you go about working with teams, working with stakeholders to identify the narratives and to sort of develop them as well. Like what, what does that involve? And yeah, how do you go about it? Yeah. That in that sense, again, mobile would be a good example. I've also dealt with the development tools, which kind of encompasses one of the like a, it's one of the largest areas that we have apart from AI ML. But uh, anyways, in terms of mobile, you have to think in the perspective of knowing your projects, at least even if it's uh, kind of a surface level knowing, but uh, knowing about their state, of what their uh, archive, pre-archive or active projects, knowing all of that information, meet with people that work on these projects internally, but also meet with the community members. I've done quite a bit of that work as well. So, because, you know, open source is not open source without its community. So you have to engage folks outside as well. And it's uh, one of the primary things you need to do. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll make sure I know what the, because I'm quite new to mobile uh, at Facebook open source, because I was in DevTools, but I would know what the current narrative is. I would know what the current presence and expectations from the public around that space might be. And that will help me to figure out where the gaps might be and how to change it for the better of the open source community. For instance, you know, when it comes to Android native space for mobile, uh, we have amazing projects like Litho, that's UI, declarative UI framework for Android. And it has been quite a bit of work on the, whether it's a online presence, whether it's open source quality of the projects. So, you know, figuring out those kind of a leading projects, whether in, in terms of popularity or gaps, uh, maybe, you know, you look at the project like that and you see that the current gap might be there are plenty of existing PRs or issues. How do you tackle those? How do you make sure those are get merged on, on a timely manner? Maybe you will figure out that the roadmap is missing for some projects. And I highly admire projects that do share roadmaps. So you, you might figure out that's a gap, but you only can find those gaps if you do talk to people not just internal, but external. I've, again, I've had that feedback about some projects that's not necessarily about Litho, but just in general, that your presence on GitHub is not the best because you might be leaving some PRs for a long time. So I'll find those gaps. They, they will fit into our narrative of really making the open source for mobile, not just about scale, but also about usability and developer experience. And uh, I'll come up with that narrative along with the main stakeholders, the engineering teams, but also the open source part of the of the project. I'll figure out again where we can tackle it, how we can tackle it and figure out the timeline. So it's very much per team, per kind of space matter. And it, I know kind of, I, I, might, I might have said like a lot of nothing <laughs> because it really is a complex large space but it's all about figuring out where the gaps are and trying to close those gaps and but ultimately be driven by your main goals and narrative which i kind of a, i'm kind of a working around because it's something that i quite sh sharing that quite yet is uh, something in the, in the works but it's uh, just genuinely speaking how we would approach it is you figure out where issues are but you have the long-term plan the direction otherwise i might focus on fresco i might focus on spectrum all those open source android uh, projects but i don't have the narrative in mind and i might just waste both time money where it shouldn't be maybe some projects should be you know archived maybe some should be some you know where we should hire uh, contractors in some projects like with buck uh open source we've hired people before who would help us to make sure our ci the you know continuous integration is working so we'll but we'll be able only able to find those gaps after working with the community so it's very much per project base per space base but it's also coming from the community as well it's uh it's a lot of things it's very complex uh and i, I unfortunately i was i don't think i was able to make it clear enough but uh yeah it's uh, a <laughs> lot of rumbling i'd say no that's cool that's good where does your community live 
Like a lot live in Slack communities, or I guess there's a Facebook version of Slack. So I doubt you're using Slack, but where do, where do, are you outside of conferences, which don't really work now? Where are you communicating? Yeah, we wouldn't, yeah, we don't force anybody on any particular space. Uh, you, you mentioned Slack. Slack is a big use. It's a, it's a big use for us for lots of projects. Like Buck is one of them, a build system that we have at, at Facebook and a project that's open source. It uses Slack. A bunch of React uh, related, like or React native related projects use Discord heavily. There is a Zeppelin chat for some projects in the IML. There is a, don't even remember other names, but I think IRC is still a thing for some like backend. Yeah, so free node, things of that sort. So we don't really force anybody to use anything in particular. We might help you uh, with the budget or with the, the, the teams wise, with sponsoring or giving you some help with like setting it up, like admin rights for Slack. You know, it's, it's very easy to give everybody permission to act, to make, for example, to transition from tr- free trial to a paid version. And, uh, you know, it might happen and we make sure that we give people direction how not to do it, but we would never force somebody to use Facebook. We have Facebook groups for uh, some projects. Many of them were launched in the past. Many do use them still for promotion because uh, Facebook, I think, reaches quite a few people, I'd say, especially, you know, uh, we don't want to keep the US centric mindset either. Uh, While in the US, uh, as in tech, I myself use Twitter quite heavily, but uh, some other countries uh, use Facebook for tech extensively as well. I've been in the events in Austria, I think, where we use Messenger for any communication about Facebook Messenger, about any communication for the event. So, you know, Telegram is all, as many projects as you can, uh, you know, chat solutions as you can think. So whatever the community, we, usually it's the space you're already in. Build system would use the whatever other build system might be using. For some backend C++, I've noticed, you use Google uh, groups quite heavily. So whatever the space is already in, people just continue doing that. And I never come with the, you have to use Slack when I I work with the team i say where do your what do you, what does your audience usually use some aiml would use email lists it always comes from like i you know whatever team already enjoys and they have expertise i don't want them to learn a new tool either for for that sake so so it's a bit nuts for you to have to be on all these tools all the time that's the thing i don't i, I i'm not there i uh i might be for some but I don't really monitor. I don't help. I, I help the team to be there, the engineering team. But I'm not going to be in 700 chats. I, I I might be the one where I, I'm looking for, like I mentioned, engaging community folks to learn more about the project. And I would go there. That's the only time I would go there, really, to find people who might be you know willing to talk. And uh, I, I'll be excited to hear, hear from. But I'm not. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Twitter for myself or on Facebook. But really, yeah, for I don't have to monitor. It's it's all up to the teams. They do it. I, I'm power them as much as I can, enable them, but they, it's it's up to, it's, you know, they up running uh, as soon as we're kind of done launching or supporting them and try to continue to support. And if they have a question, we're always there, but still you want to be self-sufficient to some extent. Obviously, Facebook's been in the news quite a bit over the last few years, and obviously we're not going to get you to talk about that. But what I did want to ask you was for anyone who only really knows Facebook through sort of casual use or through kind of the news and things like that, like how does open source sort of fit into Facebook's strategy and sort of what it wants to do as an organization? Like, could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. I, um, in terms of Facebook at open source and just in general, 
Facebook's been built on open source. It's in our DNA. And uh, our goal here at Facebook Open Source is really about empowering communities through open source technology. And that's something that uh, we continuously try to do. And uh, I think we're getting better at it. But there is obviously, with any mission statements, it's a long-term vision. It's something that you inspire to do and you're trying to do best at. But it's something, again, we're working towards. And so in terms of open source in the vision, the, the, the very fact that we're being based on open source as a company is something that we continue contributing back to. Uh, and as I mentioned before, open source has been going through some revolution where, you know, you see that open source contributors through some channels like GitHub sponsors, for example, or Open Collective, get paid and appreciated hackathons. Uh, we have now at Facebook, we've, you might have seen in the past, we've shared, but we had MLH, you know, where it's a major league hacking collaboration where uh, along with other companies, we would sponsor some folks to work on open source full-time. Uh, it's like a short work program, but especially now where it's online, they can do it from wherever they are. And so that's something we've been kind of contributing to. But also you can see that some of the projects that Facebook open source launched have really changed the industry. React has created, as an example, React or even PyTorch Py is another major product. They created millions of jobs. You can go to LinkedIn and search for you know, React in the job description. It's all over the place. A number of companies that built their websites, their products based on that, on those technology. I can't even count how many there are. And uh, some companies and some people created educational resources. There is a bunch of courses that you can find online and conferences as well, not to forget those that are entirely focused on the projects that community helped us build, really build it for themselves as well. So I think you can see how open, uh, Facebook is trying to give back through open source because we have been built on that. And you know, we, we're not making money out of it. We don't have, you know, uh, we don't have the... Um, yeah, something to sell really. I never mentioned like go to Facebook, use Facebook Messenger, WhatsApp, all those projects, people can decide for themselves. I don't ever have to connect to that part of the product marketing of any kind. Uh, while again, I focus on Facebook open source because again, we built on that. We're trying to give back. And that's again, our main goal is to empower those communities. So I don't want to take up too much more of your time. We're nearly at the end of the hour, but I want to ask you before we go, like, what are you excited for over the next 12 months? Obviously, the last year has been quite difficult, I'm sure for you, as you've said, and, you know, for everyone, really. But I wanted to ask you, yeah, what are you excited for? What are you looking forward to? Yeah, what's making you feel positive, really? Seeing your baby grow up into this little human being now. It's a good exactly. year. That, that's the main thing. That's the main thing, really. Uh, for me, I really appreciate the work-life balance that I have here at Facebook. Even being being working from home, you have to be kind of a you know collecting yourselves not to go overboard with work. But fortunately, my family helps me to remember that, and so I focus on spending as much time as I can. And now being at home all the time, I can see my baby growing. It's just it's amazing. But uh, in terms of a professional experimentation, is a, is a great thing that I'm working on, like experimenting with different skills, like video editing. I'm still learning quite extensively. Uh, lighting is very complex, but I've been think, getting better at it. So those things. And again, being ready and open to learning those new skills is something that yeah, I'm lucky to be able to, but also I'm happy that I have passion for it. So I will double down on that. Whether I'll go to in-person events this year, personally, not not sitting, but personally, even at the end of the year, I don't think I might go anybody anywhere. I would continue doing online, I think, because I always liked online actually. But next year, hopefully we'll see. So, uh, but I'll very much focus on my family and uh, safety and um, playing with this online uh, content thing. So we'll see. 
Great. Just before we go, could you let everyone know kind of where they can find you online, where they can find you on Twitter? And yeah, if you've got anything else you want to promote, um, like uh, Facebook open source and the work that you and your team do. Yeah, I was waiting for that. So (laughs) please please go to my Twitter account. Uh, So twitter.com, obviously, uh, Dmitry Vinnik. And I uh, have a website, uh, dvnik.dev, uh, .dev, the fancy domain, you know. .com will also redirect you there too. But um, Twitter, Twitter is the main thing these days. I, again, I've been trying to focus on the family more, so I haven't spent as much on my website. But Twitter, I, I think I do a pretty good job there. Uh, so please, if you're excited about uh, dev, rel, or mobile, or open source, I post regularly on all those uh, topics. Thank you. Yeah, and I know that there's um, some videos of you on YouTube as well that people can check out from some of your conference talks too. Thank you for reminding me. Always forget. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so Facebook Facebook open source YouTube channel. We have plenty of videos. Explain like I'm five. We have an open source blog where you can also find plenty of blog posts around Facebook. But just go to opensource.facebook.com and you'll find everything I just mentioned, whether it's video or blogs, you can find all of that there. Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us, Dimitri. It's been great. been a really interesting conversation. We've certainly learned a lot. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, But that's pretty much all we've got time for this week. Thank you for listening to What We Talk About When We Talk About Tech. Jennifer and I will be back next week with another guest. In the meantime, remember to follow us on Twitter. We are at underscore talkabouttech. And of course, check out our website where you can find our earlier episodes. And you can also find links to other streaming platforms where you can subscribe. Um, So if you'd rather listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever, you can get the links there. Our website is talkabouttechpodcast.com. So yeah, anyway, thanks for listening. Like I said, we'll be back next time. Uh, But until then, take care and goodbye. Goodbye.